Christ emptying himself in Philippians chapter 2 and the extent of what we were talking about. We didn't go much farther than that. Um, I'm really ready to delve right into the question of the night. Unless you have something you wanted me to review that you didn't quite get or didn't appreciate the anything. What power went out of him? That would be my contention, is that all the ministry Jesus did was post-Holy Spirit um, baptism, post-baptism. So he had his, it's not that he did not have a relationship with the Holy Spirit prior to that, but that was his public declaration of identifying himself with the people of God. Um, Very important testimony that even Jesus says, I need to be baptized. So, not because it has any relationship to sin, to identify with the people of God. And then, of course, we have the Holy Spirit's descent at that point, and that's when Christ's ministry really begins. For the, so he's about 30 years old at that point, Luke tells us. And the reason we can very confidently say that he was ministering out of the Holy Spirit is the event when the Pharisees challenged him, says, you do this by the power of Satan. And his response wasn't, I'm doing it out of my power because I'm God. What was it? You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit because he's the one doing it. So when you, when you say, I'm doing these miracles by, my, by the power of Beelzebub, you're not really attacking me because I'm not exercising my deity, Holy Spirit is exercising his deity perfectly within me. Um, and, and so that's one of our strongest statements about that. And then the, the necessity of that to his humility uh, to being fully emptied means that he was dependent upon Holy Spirit just as we are. And we're going to see that tonight as we get to his temptation. Okay, and so when the power, can you feel the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life has been a common question. And Jesus' sensitivity to it was such that he knew. Um, just like he similarly said, who touched me? And also, um, how did he know the thoughts of men around him? He knew what was in their hearts, John says. Well, by what means did he know that? Was that the exercise of his own deity, of his own omniscience, or was he dependent upon Holy Spirit? Can Holy Spirit reveal to you that um, when you are fully surrendered to him, which Jesus Christ would have been without any sin, fully surrendered to Holy Spirit? Okay, good. We're on chapter 2, which starts off uh, highest expression of love. Is that what the heading is of that chapter? And I'm not anywhere specifically in the chapter. I think later on we talk about Philippians 2 in the latter half of that chapter is where I get to that. I kind of flipped that script on you a little bit last week and this week. So um, the question really comes into Christ's temptation. And the question is, could Jesus have sinned? Uh, I think in the, in the chapter I call this hypothetical question, technically it's not, 
what is hypothetical is what would happen if he had sinned. Um, the question is really a, a one that we use to try to grasp what it means for God to become man in terms of one attribute of God. So we're dealing with a single attribute of God and we're trying to understand the relationship between that attribute and Jesus' role as mediator, um, as sacrifice. Um, when Jesus became man, how much of his holiness, that's the attribute of God that we're really examining with that question. We're really not asking the question about other things. We're, really, we're not asking it about omniscience, omnipotence, we're really asking the question, did God, did Jesus empty himself of divine holiness to become humanity? And that startles us a little bit because we think that to do that takes a, makes you a human without divine holiness, then you are unholy. But that's not who Jesus was, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So the question is, could Jesus have sinned at the temptation? So let's look at the text a little bit, um, and the temp the, uh, we'll just go to Matthew and his account of this in chapter 4. Uh, this is right after the baptism, so we have the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove, alighting on him. The voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased, which um, is very well connected to our second psalm this morning, right? Uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness for a purpose, to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry, and when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his charge, angels charge over you. Um, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Yes, Satan can quote scripture. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So this is the text. This is not the last of Jesus' temptations. Uh, we know that there were at least two other instances. One was by the mouth of one of his apostles. That was Peter, right? And Jesus, when he says, you know, not stop talking about this crucifixion thing. It's not going over very well with the crowds. Uh, and, and, you know, not so, Lord. And, and Jesus' response to him, get behind me, Satan. Uh, I don't want that you becoming Satan's mouthpiece by tempting me towards something that is very attractive to me, um, and so pushes that away. And then, of course, at the Garden of Gethsemane, he has this struggle, and that's what we're going to talk about as well. So we have those 
three direct instances where it's evident of Jesus' Uh, of some temptation. That doesn't mean that he never was tempted the rest of the time. Because, in fact, the Bible says what in Hebrews? What does Hebrews say about Jesus' reference to temptation? He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. So we have all of these passages that say Jesus was tempted. Uh, I think there was a temptation when they all wanted to make him king right there after he fed the 5,000, right? And because certainly the apostles were all for that. And he says, let's get out of here. Let's get in the boat. Let's get across to see Galilee, the other side. We can't let this happen. But certainly there was a temptation to let that happen. I mean, he is the king of kings and lord of lords, right? And so um, the Bible says he's tempted all points where we are, yet without sin. And that's the actual necessity the necessity for Christ's sacrifice to be sufficient for us is not could he have sinned, but did he sin? The question of potentiality is, is revealing a theology about the incarnation, not about the substitutionary death. The substitutionary death on the cross um, was was it was necessary to be in actuality be sinless so he didn't have to die for his own sin so when we talk about him emptying himself of his holiness in order to be truly tempted by god we have a couple of necessities number one let's talk about what it was like to be jesus and this we are unfamiliar with because none of you were born without a sin nature, correct? You are all born, and your natural man's tendency to is once you have opportunity to exert your will, you exert it against God and against other authorities in rebellion. You're going to be disobedient, generally speaking. Uh, Jesus Christ didn't have that propensity in him because he did not have a father, right? So he did not inherit Adam's sin. That is why the virgin birth is a cardinal doctrine. You cannot deny the virgin birth and be a Christian. It is of that high a necessity because otherwise you have Jesus just being a normal man like the Mormon Jesus and becoming deity somewhere along the line. And thus he overcame his sin nature somehow. And that's what their doctrine is. And therefore you're called upon to overcome your sin nature, and you can become a god just like Jesus became a god. And so when we talk about him emptying himself of divine holiness, we are not talking about him coming into our condition but more appropriately would be us to understand the condition of Adam and Eve prior to their sin. But even that isn't really accurate because what did Adam and Eve not have? Huh? They didn't have a sin nature because they hadn't sinned, but what did they not have that Jesus would have had? Say that again. Scripture? Um, well, no. Um, 
But there's something innately in Jesus that was not in Adam and Eve uh, that was part of his humanity that became part of their humanity. The knowledge of good and evil. So Adam and Eve were confronted by the tempter and sinned without the knowledge of good and evil. But they were in a state of innocence. That is, they had never sinned. And so they were perfect in their humanity. And this is what Jesus was like as a baby. His humanity was perfect, sinless, because of the power of the Holy Spirit in uh, the womb of Mary to uh, beget him of the Holy Spirit. And so he, he was fully human. It doesn't mean that he was, had a sin nature. It means that he was fully human like Adam was prior to sin. But he did have one aspect, and that is he already had a knowledge of good and evil, which that wasn't something Adam possessed until after he sinned. So he didn't know good from evil. Don't imagine that Jesus somehow grew up being surrounded by sinners and not know what sin is. Uh, so even that comparison has a, a struggle. But what I want to share with you is that the number one understanding is Jesus is coming on the scene as a perfect, sinless human. So he is not tainted by a parental sin, inherited sin from his father. But he is still fully 100% human and has set aside, emptied himself of that divine concept of holiness. Um, and, there, and that's going to be really important much later. Okay, You have to have that or else what happens at the cross is impossible. Okay? But when people hear me say Jesus Christ surrendered, emptied himself of divine holiness, we think if you don't have holiness, therefore you are evil. That's what they have projected into my position and called me a heretic, that you think Jesus is unholy. Um, what I'm telling you is he's perfectly innocent, which means that he is still righteous. He is not tainted by sin in any way in, his, uh, in the definition of who he is because of his divine uh, begetting, begotten by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, sin isn't resident in the cellular structure of humans. And, and people who want to venerate Mary say, well, she had the most perfect cellular structure, and that's why God used her, so we have to honor her because it's her bones, it's her blood, it's her flesh that, that became man. Um, certainly, uh, <laughs> the provision of the ovum was, was of Mary. Uh, theoretically, we don't know that, um, but had that human origin uh, but that's not the residence of sin. When we talk about sin being in the flesh, we're really talking about the, the, the nature of that inherited from your father. 
And thus, if you want to identify anything physically, it is that one chromosome you can only get from a man. Right? I mean, if you want to limit it down to say what exactly is the residence of sin, it seems to be that, uh, what is it, the Y chromosome? Is that what they call it? The male chromosome. And so Jesus Christ did inherit that. And so his approach to this is not from an unholy place just because he surrendered holiness. Um, And neither am I saying that he's morally neutral. I'm saying he's morally perfect like Adam was. Was Adam a moral neutral? No, he, was, he walked with God. He was righteous. He was made in perfection. And Jesus Christ was made perfect as a human. Okay, that's number one. Necessity. And, and of necessity, he must surrender. He must empty his holiness in order to become human. It doesn't mean he emptied himself of being perfect. We think that if you're not holy, you must be unholy, but that's not necessarily true. He is surrendering his divine holiness. He is being given human holiness, perfection, righteousness, like Adam in his state of innocence, but having the knowledge of good and evil, yet without sin. Number two that we need to now deal with. So, could he have sinned? Well, now the question is, what do you need to sin? James tells you that. Let's go to James. Book of James tells you how to sin, in case you were wondering how sin happens. Any of you probably don't know. If any of you children don't know how sin happens, the one book of wisdom in the New Testament is probably the book of James. All right, um, and the earlier tri- part of James talks about trials and tribulations, and, let, and that's where we have this statement that says um, uh, that without faith, it's, um, you're just foolish and it's driven by it. But we come to verse 13. Of James chapter 1, it says, Now let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And that's the phrase. God cannot be tempted by evil. See, it says it right there. And if Jesus is God, then he cannot be tempted by evil. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. All right. So, is James here communicating to us that divinity can't be tempted to sin? Yes, God is righteous. It is, it is, he is holy, holy, holy. It is an attribute he possesses. The question is, can he empty himself? Can, does he have control over his holiness to such a degree that he can fully set it aside. Not that. And now can he be potentially stained with sin? Well, again, if you don't have that, we have a problem. So how, what is necessary for someone to sin, according to this passage? All right, so first we have a tempter. Should we start there? 
But for a tempter to work, you have to have a will. You have to have your own desire. The word desire there is the word for will. So you have to have a will. If you don't have an independent will, now I don't say free will at this point because I don't need that right now. An independent will means that my will isn't, is my own. Um, that it might be influenced and affected by others still, but I still have an intact independent will. It is my will is different than God's will. Do I have an identifiably distinct will? That's the word desires there. Now, having a desire different than God's, not wrong, different. So it's my will and God's will. Having a will distinct from God's will, does that make me a sinner? No, Adam obviously had that. And he chose to obey God and name the animals. He chose to, you know, obey God on a regular basis in the sins of, of, of omission. He didn't commit those. And so he chose to obey God and, uh, until that event. So having a will. But having a will is necessary. Otherwise, you cannot be tempted to sin. You have to start where James starts it off, and you have to have a desire. He is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So, what is enticement? <laughs> enticement is the actual temptation. Okay? So, here is a desire of your heart. Um, we all want to, you know, what did Adam and Eve's desire? Well, she saw the fruit was desirable to make one wise, and it looked pretty tasty. So we have two desires, right? Do we like tasty things? Yes. Do you, do you think Jesus liked tasty things? Did he have taste buds? Do you think he liked tasty things? If you don't think so, you should go visit a fig tree. Do you remember the event of the fig tree? He came up to the fig tree looking for a fig because he wanted to eat a fig. And it didn't have one. And he cursed it and it was dead the next day. Because Jesus Christ wanted a fig. He had those same desires. Okay? What an enticement is, does it say, fulfill that desire with disregard to the parameters of God over those desires. So having a desire is a gift of God. Having will. But God gives us the parameters of that. What were the parameters of Adam's will in the garden? Eat whatever you want. Of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. That means you are free to exercise your will of what you choose to eat or not eat. Right? Complete freedom. We always overlook that word for some reason. Freedom. Eat whatever you want. I have just one parameter. Don't eat that tree. It'll kill you. It'll break our relationship. It'll tree the, I'll even name the tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we had a parameter. So God has given you a will, but he's given you a parameter, right? And then we, once we have sin, now we have to have more parameters because sin goes crazy. And so now we start shortening lifespan. We start with, and we even get to the point of the law. 
uh, and now the law is a big parameter, and then we have more. And so we have these parameters to contain our will and to keep it from just pursuing our desires um, out of control. But that, so the question is, did Jesus have a will independent of God's will? The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus Christ himself said that. Here's what I want. Here's what the Father wants. We're going to have a discussion. It's called prayer. Here's what I, I'd like to avoid this. Uh, I don't really, I'm, I know I sent here for this. I know that's my purpose. Is there any way, have you come up with something in the last 30 years I haven't heard about? Last 33 years, have you come up with a plan B? No. This is it. Okay. I'm going to surrender my will to your will. Right? Now, that's what's necessary. You have to have desires to be enticed, to be drawn outside of the boundaries that God has established for what is an acceptable free use of your will without penalty. Okay? Um, and that's what enticement is. I'm going to try to draw you out of those boundaries, even if that boundary is just one tree, by using your desires of your will. If Jesus had a will separate from the Father's, now the question is, can there be a moral dilemma between Jesus and God? A moral dilemma is, I want this and he wants that. And that's what the Garden of Gethsemane teaches us. That there was a true moral problem that Jesus had to confront and that's why Gethsemane becomes even more potent a temptation than what happened at the beginning of the Gospels in being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And let me just share with this, and that's what James is telling us here, the most potent tempter in your life isn't Satan. The most potent tempter in your life is you. You are your worst enemy. Satan has, has, you know, the world has an appeal. Satan knows how to attack and attempt. I'm not diminishing that. I'm just saying that the most potent tempter in your life will be you. You will get yourself into more sin than anyone else around you can. We want to guard our children from people that will tempt them and draw them into bad living and poor decisions, sin. Uh, we want to try to keep them from having influence of the world through media and things like that, keep them from being tempted to sin. Um, but their number one enemy is themselves, their own desires. So Jesus had his strongest temptation, I think, in the Gethsemane. It was presaged by Peter's statement, you know, let's not talk about, let's not do this, this crucifixion thing. Um, we can find another way. Uh, and Jesus confronted God about that. And so here's the Father and the Son having a moral dilemma. Who's going to surrender to who? Who is going to, and Jesus Christ surrenders. 
he subordinates himself. He chooses correctly to do God's will instead of his own will. But for the purposes of temptation, James tells us, all you need is a desire. But having a desire by itself, have you sinned yet? No. You are being, but you are going to, your own desires are going to be used against you to try to get you to leave the parameters that God has put in your life. Okay? And that's next. So the next thing is that uh, when desire has conceived, in other words, that you have followed the enticement and you have pursued that desire uh, away from the parameters that God has set, it gives birth to sin. And so this is the step. Now, I have these desires. If I can contain them within the parameters that God gives me, which has a lot of liberty. And Paul even talks about that, right? He says, I'm free to do a lot of things. We always talk about what we can't do, but we have so much freedom in Christ. It's just incredible. Um, and, but we are still enticed to violate the wonder of what he has given to us and the parameters that, that are wide and, and enable us a lot of freedom. And so that's when sin occurred. Okay? Um, for temptation to happen, you have to have an independent will separate from God's, and you have to have a dilemma where your will is different than God's will. And recognizing that is really critically important in the temptation process. A lot of people succumb to temptation because they said, well, I've already thought about it, so I might as well do it. Well, being enticed is not the same as sinning. Rather, we need to get that under control very quickly. And so when, when I am confronted with a temptation, it is always going to hit some part of my life that's a, that, that I'm attracted to that. It's a desire. And whether that is coveting and desiring it, whether it's, whether it's um, lust, whether it's any of, any of these sins, complaining uh, because I think I deserve better, um, I have all these desires and, um, but I have them contained, and then something comes in that wants me to step outside the boundaries, and so let's use covetousness. Covetousness, the Bible says, is idolatry. You're putting up a thing in place of God. You want to pursue that thing instead of pursuing God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now I'm pursuing, oh, that's a Mini Cooper. That's my favorite little car that I'll never own, okay? Um, it's just my favorite little car. Um, not that I don't like my truck. I use my truck a lot, obviously, and it had much more utility, and that's why I don't own a Mini Cooper, because I can't carry people or stuff in it. Um, but I think it's a cool little car. And so a little Mini Cooper drives in the parking lot, and somebody steps out, and I go, that's a nice little car you got. Now, what do I have to contain? So how do I do that? I don't want to covet his Mini Cooper. I just want to say it's a nice car. I've always appreciated them. Um, well, I don't go around coveting everybody's Mini Cooper, but I, I do notice them. I'll say, oh, look at that little Mini Cooper. Am I coveting it? 
It's a fine line, though, isn't it? It can easily be crossed if I'm drawn. Covetousness takes an action. It's enticement to go outside the boundary of contentment. The question is, am I content with my big banana truck? Okay? Well, yes, I am. I, I am content with that, generally, as long as it's running. Um, I'm content there. Uh, and I just look at that and I say, well, if I was a different person with a different life with a different goals, I would probably own one of those. But that's not who I am. And so I am content, and I don't sit there long after it says, oh, if only I didn't have, you know, this, this, this. If only I wasn't this person, I, I could rationalize opening that. I don't do that. I don't take those steps that covetous takes you where you desire after so strongly you just can't get your mind away from it, and you're even thinking, well, I could steal it. I could I go buy it. I could sell all my stuff and go get this, and I could drive off, you know, to the beach and, and in my little Mini Cooper. Um, no. I bring that under subjection to control, and I make sure I stay content. Am I content without one? Yes. Even when I see one? Yes. Um, but if someone drives up here and says, you want to take it for a spin, preacher? You know, that's a car salesman, okay? You want to take it for a spin? And, and I've been confronted with those kind of salesmen. Uh, when we were out hunting in Texas, um, the guide, he was just always after me. Everybody has their one animal. And I'm like, you know, and, and we saw a fallow deer that was just spectacular, and I just made the mistake of saying, that is a spectacular animal right there. He says, that's it. He says, if I can work a deal, you want to hunt it? No, I don't. I'm content. I'm here for meat, and I'm here to satisfy my kids. I don't need this beautiful animal uh, <laughs> stuffed in my house to feel like I'm a con- complete person. Okay? But it was a beautiful animal, and, and it, it would have been a beautiful thing. But it's not why I was there. But he saw an opportunity to say, hey, let's work a deal and I can get that animal and you could... No, I'm content. It's, but it's attractive to your desires. Did Jesus have that? Yes. Yes. As a child? Yes. He had all the same desires, but they weren't tainted by a sin nature underlying them that drew him to that step beyond enticement into sin. But he had them in order to be tempted. You cannot be tempted if you have no desires. And the number one desire of Jesus, um, physically, as a human, was to avoid the cross. And he didn't pursue it. But the fact that he had a desire that was separate from the Father meant that temptation is real. Okay? So what is the next thing you need to, why we need to, so we have to have those two things, and now we have to have the liberty to choose. Did Jesus have that liberty? Yes. Um, And don't think that choice was taken lightly. What was going on in Gethsemane? Yeah, and how did that manifest itself in his body? He was sweating blood. Any of you sweat blood? Have any of you sweat blood? 
You know what it requires for that to happen? Severe hypertension. This was an extraordinary strain on him. Did you know that stress doesn't, isn't sin? Being under stress is not sinful in itself. How you react to that stress is, Jesus Christ was under incredible strain that his capillaries, uh, fine capillaries way out in his sweat glands were bursting. He was under that kind of strain. This is genuine, real. He was under extraordinary pressure here of this, for the first time in his existence, of this conflict that we have God with two wills. And so he is pouring himself out in prayer um, he is being badly uh, ignored by his apostles who don't understand the conflict at all, and most Christians don't understand it because they don't think about what it takes to sweat blood. The incredible strain of that on his body, of dealing with that. And we don't fight sin to that level. Jesus Christ was fighting temptation on a scale that is unimaginable to most of us because we've never fought it that hard. Um, you know, we look at Joseph, well, he fought the temptress by, you know, running away and leaving his clothes behind necessary. Run, 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 run. Um, and most of us won't even do that. We think we're strong enough. We think we, you know, we don't think, oh, I should run from this temptation, from this person who is trying to entice me and they're touching on desires that I have, but I don't want them to be expressed outside the parameters of God and his will for me. Jesus Christ couldn't run from this. And so, could he have sinned? Well, the question really is relaying, is he human enough to be fully tempted by anything to go contrary to the Father's will? And the answer has to be yes. Now, there's one other issue. What happened at the cross? Darkness, right? Jesus Christ is in a severe condition, very near death, and darkness covers the earth. It doesn't just say Everyone says, oh, there was this eclipse at this time. But that's not what the Bible says. This is the earth. And so God turned his, his face away and darkness, uh, supernatural darkness was there. And we find that, uh, what does Christ cry out? Why have you forsaken me? Biblically, what happened at that moment? Huh? No, you had the Holy Spirit. Well, um, that's a good question. I hadn't really cons considered that. Okay. Um, yeah, I would say that that's not out of line to say that the Holy Spirit was very possibly gone by that point. Why? Because the Bible says he became sin for us, he who knew no sin. The only way... Jesus could become your sin is if he 100% set aside holiness. 
The only way he could become sin is if he was 100% capable of being tempted. And that little phrase that he became sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might receive the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, is a powerful declaration. And it is reflected on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the reason he forsook him was not because it was an ugly scene, but because Jesus Christ at that moment became sin. He was embodying in his flesh our sin, was being attributed to him. And the only way that he could be the vessel to carry your sin to its point of death is if he put aside the divine holiness 100%. He emptied himself of holiness. And if he emptied himself 100% of holiness, then in fact he could have sinned, but he didn't. Praise God. And that means the temptations were real. Probably more real than any temptation you have encountered, frankly. I don't know that I've ever been directly tempted by Satan himself. And I'm certain I've never sweat blood in my battle of my will in contradiction to God's. I just rationalize it in sin, usually, right? And so, this tells you something about how human Jesus was. That he surrendered all of these attributes. The holiness attribute is just one attribute this question engages. And now once we resolve, and this is the, in fact, in my wife's Sunday school lesson, she, she looked at me last night, she looked over and she said, here, it's in my lesson. The most important attribute of God is holiness. That's what she was supposed to teach the kids this morning. Okay? And that's completely contrary to the whole contention that the attributes of God are all equivalent. They have all equal importance. But we have to go back to this statement by James. God cannot be tempted with sin, because that's what they keep hammering me with. So which is it? Could Jesus be tempted or not tempted? We have to go back to Philippians chapter 2. And the answer is, he emptied himself. He humbled himself, became a servant to the point of death, and death on the cross. He surrendered his divinity before he became man, not at the cross. He didn't surrender at the cross. He didn't surrender it in the womb. He surrendered it before he was put in the womb so that he could be put in a womb. He had to humble himself to come here. Coming here didn't humble him. That's not a semantic thing. That's an important theological difference. Okay? He humbled himself to become a man. And that's why Philippians 2, he humbled himself and became a servant. Becoming a servant didn't humiliate him. He humiliated himself first. He had to empty himself so that he could become 100% man. 
Does that mean he stops being God? Simply because he perfectly separates himself from his attributes? No. Because remember, what is the definition of God? Is it the total of his attributes? Or are the attributes some things that God possesses? And we define God as being the, help me out, the self-existing personal being. Did Jesus stop being the self-existing personal being when he became man? Was he still a person? A being? Did he have the breath of life? (coughs) Was he alive? Yes. Was he self-existing? I'm not talking about his humanity. I'm talking about his divinity. Yes. He existed before he became flesh. So he never stopped being God. Even when he 100% surrenders his attributes and says, I'm no longer going to be omnipresent. And by the way, he's still not omnipresent, is he? That's a permanent condition he put himself under. I'm still not going to be, I'm, not, I'm going to surrender all these attributes, omniscience, omnipotence, I'm going to surrender them so that I can be 100% man I'm going to exercise complete sovereignty over all my attributes so that I am removed from them. Can he access them whenever he wants? Yes, it's his choice. But he loved you enough to take that kind of a... a sacrifice... And that's why we should celebrate Christ's birth. People contend, oh, the Bible doesn't ever tell you to celebrate Christ's birth. I don't know how much more it needs to tell you. Angels did. The stars did. Magi did. Um, Frankly, it is the second most powerful act of humility of Christ to become human. Uh, Only supplanted by his willingness to become sin for you and die. And so, yeah, I'm going to celebrate that because that's his highest expression of love. Number one, highest expression of Christ's love, he became sin for you, the one who didn't know sin, that you can be delivered from your sin. Number two expression of his love is he became man so that he could become sin for you. And those are two expressions of humility on a scale that we can't hardly get our mind around to such a degree that theologians have concluded that if you believe that Jesus could have sinned, you're saying he's not God. And you're a heretic. And that's what I've been called. My problem is their position denies all that we studied in the Bible just now. Because the Bible's lying to you. Because if Jesus could not sin, 
How could he be tempted? How could there be a moral dilemma? A conflict between his will and God's will? Are all those things lies? The Spirit of God sent him in the temp- to the wilderness to be tempted, it says. Is that a lie? Okay? And we can make a lot. In the chapter, I tell you the difference between tempting and testing, right? What's the difference? Because that's the out, right? Jesus wasn't tempted, he was tested. That's their out. Same Greek word. Same exact Greek word. Tempting and testing. God tests you. Satan tempts you. It's the exact same word. What's the difference? Correct. It is the approach of the person to you. The one who is putting you through a trial, through a testing, is wanting you to come forth as gold. They want you to succeed. They want you to get through this. When, when God says to Hezekiah, I'm going to leave you alone and see what you do. He didn't say it to him. He just, we were told that in, in the Bible. God says, you know, I've been taking care of Hezekiah. Let me take a step back and see what he does. Do you think God wanted him to fail? No, he wanted him to seek the Lord. He wanted him to succeed. When Satan comes on the scene, he wants you to fall. And that's why we use these two words different. We fall to temptation because they're wanting to trip you up. But you fail a test because they want you to succeed. Right? When your teacher gives you a test, do they want you to fail? What happens if you fail? What does it look like for them? (laughs) I'm a bad teacher, right? Your teacher doesn't give you a test to try to make you fail. They're trying to measure how much you've learned. They want you to ace it. Unless they're a really disgruntled teacher. They want you to ace that thing so you show that that you've learned all the things they were trying to teach you. They poured all of their effort. Um, So when you, you fail tests, you fall to temptation because one's trying to trip you up and the other one is trying to pull you up. And so to say Jesus was tempted instead of, or tested instead of tempted, is just foolishness. Okay? It's not understanding the perspective of the word. And those are two English words that we use for the same Greek word. And the context tells us whether it's positive or negative that is enticing you. Are you trying to get a positive outcome or a negative outcome? Okay? So this is the premise. So we're going to explore it one more week and give you a chance to engage me now that you've got downloaded a lot of this perspective. Um, But please realize uh, I've been trying to be very forthright. This is not what most of our conservative evangelical churches would teach. They would view what you just heard as heretical and condemn me for it, okay? And uh, I would love to have one of them come in and give their argument, um, but I don't think they'd step foot in here. <laughs> uh, but I, they, you, re, you can pick up most of their writing, and again, 
the attribute of God they want defended is his holiness. And so we're going to talk about does this answer, yes, Jesus could have sinned, violate the holiness of God? Uh, potentially there's an answer there, but it actually it does not necessitate it. But they're struggling with even the possibility of it happening. Okay? And so don't be afraid to get into your scriptures and say, can I prove pastor wrong? Or read some of these other guys or listen to them. There's plenty out there. Just type the question in, could Jesus have sinned, and see what kind of responses you get. Um, And I'm not talking about just once or twice. In the course of just being a pastor here in this church, I have had four individuals that uh, ferreted that out, and I'm not, I haven't really ever hidden it from anybody. Um, and uh, one of that directly answered, um, in all four times I was a heretic. So. <laughs> okay? And so this, is, this is, needs to be uh, thoroughly investigated. I'm just giving you my perspective on that but it certainly is not uh, representative of what a lot in our family of theology would hold to. Okay, so I'm talking about Baptists and missions missionaries. I'm talking about uh, people you know, of course, because they're in our church, um, who were just distraught to hear me give a different answer than the status quo answer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for all that you did for us. And tonight, just by rehearsing how much you gave up for us, what you emptied yourself up and what it cost you to remind us of the power of your sacrifice and the extent of your love and what you endured for me is just overwhelming. And we don't really even understand it. Just, just thinking on it. We marvel. And we just can't say thank you enough. Not only with our words, but Lord, help us to say thank you with our lives. By walking in your truth, in your spirit. Not grieving him with our unbelief and our sin. Not being enticed by the world, by Satan, or our own flesh but that we might uh, pursue after you with all our hearts. We can never repay what you've done for us, Lord, but we can demonstrate our thankfulness even in these days. We need your help, and we know you've given it to us by your Spirit within us, your Word before us, your people around us, and Lord, we want to walk in your truth. We might be found righteous, walking in our righteousness, your righteousness, when you come. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So hopefully you'll be prepared for a little more discussion next week, okay? Next Sunday evening.